If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Kyle, and I have the honor and privilege of serving as the associate pastor here at Crossroads Christian Church. And I just want to say thank you so much. Um, pray for me that my voice gets through this sermon. Um, I, I've tested. I don't have COVID, um, but something's going on with my voice today. And just pray uh, uh, that the Lord will help us get through this. So I appreciate your grace in advance. Um, they say you don't get to choose your family. This is true. Um, but wouldn't it be great, at least sometimes, if we could? <laughs> As we're about to enter what is likely to be the most family-centric time of the year, November and December, perhaps you've thought about, or maybe dreaded a little bit about, family. Thanksgiving dinners, Christmas travels, meals together with parents, siblings, grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, in-laws, either bring thoughts of great joy, or great stress, or wait for it, Maybe both at the same time. Families here on earth are like this because they're comprised, the Bible says, of sinners, of sinful people like you and me, all together trying to figure out how to live in harmony with others, albeit imperfectly most of the time. Um, today, I have the honor and privilege of teaching God's Word and uh, talking about God's Word with you as we continue our series in 1 John. Today, we're going to talk a lot about family, God's family. You see, one of the core teachings of Christianity is that when we believe in Jesus and are saved from our sins, God adopts us into his forever family. Adoption comes with all the same rights and privileges as a biological child may claim. And in the case of our spiritual adoption into God's family, the Bible tells us that we're showered with God's love, something that John, the author of 1 John, wants to make sure that we really understand. So let's learn together about how being a part of God's family ought to shape our lives right now. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please read along with me in 1 John uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 28. If you don't, the words should be behind me on the screen. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. First thing I want you to see from this passage today is that God gives his perfect love to his children. God gives his perfect love to his children. Look at what the scriptures say in 1 John, uh, uh, starting, with verse, or starting with chapter 3, verse 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John is trying to show us what kind of love God's given us. If you look at the text, you'll notice that John says, see, see. He says, see what kind of love the Father's given to us. He wants us to take a closer look into what this love is and how it works. This makes me think of a scene, um, of all things, a Marvel movie. There's a, there's a scene in a Marvel movie, and around our house, it's kind of become a dad joke. Um, I'll, I'll give you the rundown. In the end credit scene in the movie Thor from 2011, so we're going way back, so if, you, if I'm spoiling your Marvel thing, you had 11 years, I'm sorry. Um, you had 11 years. Uh, in the scene... Thor from the, from the year 2011, Nick Fury, who is a government agent, 
is showing Eric Selvig, who is a scientist, an object called the Tesseract Cube. Now, in the Marvel movies, the Tesseract is an amazingly powerful object. Um, it's being kept in secret so the wrong people do not use it for evil purposes. However, out of the shadows, as Nick Fury is showing Eric Selvig this, out of the shadows, another character, another familiar Marvel character, and often mischievous Marvel character, appears. His name is Loki. Loki also sees the Tesseract Cube, and intrigued by its power, he then turns right towards the camera and says the following line, well, I guess that's worth a look. So now, of course, in the everyday life of our family, when our daughter Brooklyn is walking down the street and she points out something interesting, like, hey, there's a new flavor of bubble tea on this poster outside the cafe, I will usually, as a dad, make a mischievous smile and go, well, I guess that's worth a look. <laughs> then the eye rolls and the groans really begin at that point. That's when they really pick up. So to bring it back to the book of 1 John, um, John knows that God's love is an active, powerful, and different kind of love than any love we've ever known. And so in this verse, he's saying, well, I guess that's worth a look. See, see this love. Study it. Get up close to it. God's love is perfect, active, and powerful type of love. So powerful that it's able to adopt us into his family as children of God. The opening line of Stuart Townend's hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, says this. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And we are not simply his treasure, but furthermore, we are his children. Parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. Think of the difference here between a material treasure or object and your own child. You may love a material treasure. You may spend considerable time, money, and energy into acquiring it, protecting it, and enjoying it. But at the end of the day, I think you and I would all agree, and everybody in this room would agree, you'd be a terrible parent if you placed a higher value on that object than you did on your own child. Of course, we value our children's lives and flourishing um, more than we do any material object, right? Why? Because they are our children. So if this is true for us, who are sinful and flawed and imperfect people, how much more true is this with God, who is our perfect heavenly Father? Therefore, I want you to see today, it's not a small thing to be called children of God in the scriptures. God himself is the source of this love, and he gives this love to his children generously, without holding back, the way only a perfect heavenly Father could do for his own children. And isn't this a God worth knowing, church? Isn't this a God better than the false ideas about God that we can often create in our own minds? The scriptures explain to us why the world doesn't just understand this uh, type of love like, like right off the bat. Like, like, they don't just get it immediately. In the end of verse 1, it says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. For those who are not followers of Jesus, who do not know God or have a relationship with God, this kind of love is frankly inconceivable. It's unrecognizable. And it also leads to the truth that sometimes the world may express hatred or reviling towards believers. The Bible tells us to expect this from time to time as normal. Because why? Because the world didn't know Jesus either. And, and, and they, didn't, they didn't want to receive and experience his love, but instead they expressed hatred towards his message of repentance and forgiveness during his ministry here on earth. So those who do not know or refuse to know God in this way, have not experienced his love. 
and therefore they do not understand Christians fully. They don't get us sometimes, right church? John writes this to us as an encouragement for the times when we feel misunderstood or mistreated by the world. John's essentially saying that if people refuse to acknowledge God in their hearts, they will also refuse to do the same with us, his children. And the good news about this is that God's love is greater than the world's hate. God's love is more powerful and it's more perfect. And God even gives his perfect love to us, his children. It adopts us into his family. The second thing that I want you to see uh, this afternoon, God's children abide in Christ. God's children abide in Christ. Look at uh, 1 John um, chapter 2, verse 28. It says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The scriptures tell us that God's children are to abide in Christ. So this raises two questions. Number one, how does one abide in Christ? Number two, why does one abide in Christ? How and why? First, let's talk about how. John has used this word abide 10 times in verses 6 through 27 of chapter 2. 10 times he uses the word abide. You might say this is actually a general theme of the letter of, of John. Abiding in Christ means finding our identity and our salvation in Jesus alone. It means centering or orienting our entire lives around who he is and trusting him as our Lord and Savior, not ourselves. Abiding makes a close fellowship with God impossible, one that frankly is impossible if we're not abiding in him. It's hard to be close to somebody that you're not abiding in, right? So you may ask, well, how do I abide? How do I do this? Is this a verb, like an action word, or is this something that I passively do? How do I abide in Christ? It's a common question if you read your Bible. You read these verses that say abide. Okay, well, how? How do I do it? First, it's a spiritual reality. It, it starts with the spiritual, church. Do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust in him? Is he your Lord and Savior? Has God brought you to repentance of your sins? Has that happened in your life? Has there been a time in your life where you have seen the, the reality of your sin before a holy God and turned away from it and turned towards God for grace and mercy? Has that happened for you? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Do you believe that he's the one who has accomplished your salvation through his life, his death, and his resurrection? Just like the scriptures tell us. Have you been brought from what we call spiritual death to spiritual life? Um, if you grew up in church, uh, maybe you've heard, have you been born again? Have you, have you been born again? Have, has that spiritual reality occurred for you? Second, if it has, then abiding is about a posture of the heart, a posture of the heart. Have you allowed God the Holy Spirit to guide your heart towards Christ? Just like a child goes to his or her father for wisdom, guidance, instruction, correction, and conviction. Are you closed off to God? Have you kind of put a wall up between you and God saying, you know what, God, like, I'll let you have these things, but I'm going to put a wall right here. I'm going to draw a line right here, and these are the things you're not going to have. Have we done that? Have we made demands or negotiations? Do we, do we envision it like we're working a deal with God? We only let him have access to parts of our lives, not the whole. The other thing I'll mention about posture of the heart is your heart positioned towards God. Does it stand ready to receive what God has for you, or are you afraid? <laughs> are you afraid to actually ask God for something because 
maybe you're afraid of what his answer might be. Does it stand ready to receive what God has for you, or is it focused on other things? Is it chasing something else besides God? And the last thing I'll say is, is a little more practical. Do you engage in practices that place you closer to God? These would be things like prayer, meditating on scripture, fasting, being in community with other Christians, worship through singing, we just did that, uh, generosity in Jesus' name, Sabbath, rest, those types of things. Um, this is what it means to abide in Christ, church. These things place us close to Jesus. They place us close to him. These are not a spiritual checklist. It's not a spiritual to-do list. Um, it's instead, you could say, it's done in response to God's love for us. These are not things that we do to earn points with God. These are not things we do to earn his good favor. Uh, these are not things, things we do to try to, to try to put a good grade on a paper and turn it in and hope it's good enough. Instead, these are, the, these are the evidences of a life and a heart that's already been transformed by God. That's why I said it starts with the spiritual. So why does one abide in Christ? Why? 1 John 2.28 tells us that if we abide in Christ, if we have a relationship and fellowship with God through Jesus, then we will have, here's a big word, confidence when he returns again. Confidence. And by the way, Revelation 1.7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. The reality of Jesus' second coming is a very clear teaching of Scripture. It's a very clear teaching of Scripture that one day Jesus is coming back. Now, we can get into a big debate about when's he coming back, how's it going to ha- like, what's it going to look like, how's it going to work. There's godly Christians that have had many, many different, uh, if you will, ideas about, uh, about that. That's not what this sermon's about. Um, but the reality that there is a second coming of Jesus is a clear teaching of Scripture. And let's look at the differences. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a baby in a manger. At his second coming, the Scriptures tell us that he will break through the clouds, riding on a white horse as King of kings and Lord of lords. And when Jesus came the first time, he was preaching a message of repentance and salvation, calling people to turn away from their sins and, and, and to follow him. When he comes again, the Bible tells us he'll be coming to execute judgment. All people will either have confidence to approach Christ in that moment when he comes again, or the Bible says will shrink back in shame. The difference between these people, John says, is whether or not they are abiding in Christ. God's desire is that all Christ followers, all Christ followers are prepared to see Jesus face to face that we're expectantly looking for him, that we're confident in our relationship with him. God wants us to know, you heard Pastor Will talk last week, why was the book of 1 John written? It's that so you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to have confidence in our relationship with Jesus and know that we are prepared to meet him. Those who do not believe in Christ will undoubtedly shrink back in shame. What other response could you have? Because his second coming is a sign of their judgment, not their salvation, since they rejected Christ. So abiding in Christ's church is what prepares us to see Jesus when he comes again. And the last thing that I'll say on this point is that we don't know when the Lord is returning. We don't know. It may be soon. It may be further down the road of time. We don't know. So no matter when he plans his return, we want to be ready. So I always think about these questions. Uh, what do I want to be doing when the Lord returns? 
What do I not want to be doing when the Lord returns? There are probably specific actions, thoughts, or ways of living that you would not want to be engaged in. Can I get an amen when the Lord returns? And and in a way, this is kind of what John is trying to help us avoid. (laughs) You would likely feel shame if Jesus dropped in during one of your worst moments, correct? While abiding in Christ does not make us sinless or perfect, we still have the bad moments. We still have the bad moments. It does not make us perfect. It does position us near Jesus. And it does allow us to be conformed into his image, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And as we look back at our lives, we can say, you know what? Down the road, I'm following Jesus more closely. I look more like Jesus. I walk more like Jesus. I talk more like Jesus than I do today. Abiding in Christ helps us be prepared to meet Jesus face to face. And on that day, we ought to run towards Christ. On that day when he comes again, we run towards him just like a child does when they see their, their parent coming from far away, right? Um, I have a funny story about that. So um, I've, I've started trying to run a little bit more. Now, we have a running pastor here at Crossroads. Um, it's not me. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, our, it's our lead pastor, Pastor Will. Um, but I'm trying to run a little bit, a little bit more. And sometimes I'll do my run early in the morning while my daughter's uh, going to school. Um, my wife takes her, and so I'll, I'll sometimes cross paths. And if I'm a little ways down, um, maybe I'm a couple blocks down, and my daughter sees me because I'm kind of crossing paths with him. She sees me, and she runs. <laughs> she's still at that age where she runs. A few years, she's going to be like, eh, put the headphones back in. Um, but right now, she runs. She runs, and she wants to give a high five or something, like when I go by, you know? Um, she knows better than to hug, because usually it's like a sweaty situation, so she just knows better to, to not do that. But, uh, but she wants to give a high five. She runs towards me. And just in the same way, in the same way, when Jesus returns again, if we're abiding in Christ, we are going to want to run towards him when we see him. This is the posture of God's children, who are a part of God's family. And so John's telling us the truth. He's saying, if you're one of God's children, you'll abide in Christ. The other thing that I want you to see, this is our third main point, is that God's adoption gives us hope and makes us pure. God's adoption gives us hope and makes us pure. Read what it says uh, with me. It says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So what John is saying here is that while there are no physical signs of someone becoming a Christian, there is a hope within us that purifies us from the inside out. There's something that happens in people when they start following Jesus, John says, that changes them from the inside out. This is because one day we know that we will see Jesus face to face and we will be changed. There is nothing within us apart from Christ that can give us that kind of eternal hope, is there? There's nothing. Can any material expectation provide that kind of hope? A lot of people dream of winning the lottery, but can it provide eternal hope? No, because all things, including great wealth, fade, break, or degrade with time. Isn't every other kind of hope just temporary? Only an eternal living hope, which means you have to have a risen and living God and Lord and Savior. 
Only that can be the source of our true hope. The temporary does not compare at all to things that are eternal, things that last forever. Things that are eternal never go away. (laughs) That's why they're eternal. And they're always with us. And so the source of our eternal hope has to be Christ alone. There can be no other source. We hope because we know that Jesus Christ is coming again. We hope because we know that one day we will see him. We hope because we know that we will be like him. Scriptures promise us this, church, and it's a great promise. And also, when somebody is born again as a Christian, they have a hope in God that leads them to being made pure. Being made pure. This happens through the working of the Holy Spirit within them. The purifying process, by the way, is a lifelong thing. It's not, it, it, it's not a microwave, okay? It's not like, you know, you, you put something in there, you, you press a few buttons, a few seconds later, something comes out, done. That's not how it works. It's a lifelong process. But it's eventually able to be seen by those on the outside. Eventually, if you're becoming more and more like Jesus every day on the inside, if you're allowing God to work on your heart because you're abiding in him, people are going to start seeing the evidence of that. And they're not even your audience. <laughs> right? Like God, like God is your audience. <laughs> but they're going to see it. And just to be clear, just to make sure everybody gets this, godly outward behavior is not what makes someone righteous. Godly outward behavior is not what makes someone righteous. It's a sign of someone who has been made, past tense, has been made righteous by Christ. So again, godly outward behavior is not something that makes us righteous. It's not a checklist for God. But instead, what it does is it demonstrates, it shows that, hey, this person has been made righteous by Christ. They're part of God's family. They're one of God's children, and they're abiding in him. Look at 1 John uh, 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Of course, John's not ignorant of the fact that Christians can and sometimes do walk in darkness. Christians are not perfect people. You need to hear that from a pastor. Christians are not perfect people. But what he's saying here in this passage is that when you see the true righteousness of Christ in a person, you're seeing someone who's a part of God's family. You're seeing somebody who has been changed from the inside out. And the thing that makes all of this possible is when John says, beloved, we are God's children now, today. Our adoption into God's family gives us hope and it makes us pure. It gives us hope and it makes us pure. To be adopted, to be given hope, and to be made pure. This is what it means to belong to Jesus. And church, as you think about family, what a privilege it is to be offered a chance to be a part of God's family. It's God's forever family. And we will enjoy him, the Bible says, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are called children of God for that is what we are. Totally thanks to you, not because of anything that we have done or anything that we deserve. Because of your great love for us, you have saved and redeemed us from our sin, from the curse of sin and from death itself. For the Bible tells us that you conquered death. You adopted us into your family when we were orphans. 
without hope and without you in the world. Thank you, God, for your great love for us. And God, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will mold and will shape us into the image of your Son so that we can be prepared to meet Jesus with confidence. Lord, let your blessing words come over us when you say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we stand before you. Let, let well done and good, good and faithful servant ring out over us, over everybody in this room. God, I pray that it be so. I pray that you will convict us of any remaining sin that we are holding on to. Convict us of the things, God, that we're, where we're holding on to control and not letting you take control of our lives. Purify our hearts, God, so that we may abide in you even now, in this moment. All for your glory, Lord. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.